Welcome back to Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and move. Today's conversations with one of my close friends, Sean Stevenson. Sean is a best-selling author of multiple books. One was Eat Smarter, the other was Sleep Smarter. He also recently has a new cookbook out called Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. Uh, this conversation is important. Uh, I think it's one worth taking notes on. Sean just brings so much science, so much data, uh, and also so much wisdom. Uh, so I'm really grateful to get to share this with y'all. Uh, we get into foods that make you fat, foods that burn fat, foods that make you sad, foods that make you sleepy, foods that make you awake, foods that make you improve your mood, uh, and much more than that. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. I think it's very important, and I appreciate y'all subscribing so you receive each week's episode, uh, and also jump over to the Align Podcast YouTube channel to check out the video version of this. Thank you for reviews. Thank you for joining you. Let's get to it with my guy, Sean Stevenson. We can start this mother flipping podcast, Sean Stevenson. Thank you for your patience. Of course, yes. Have you ever (laughs) done this standing? Because it felt like Neo, man. Like the room was like... I was wondering. I was like, "Shoot, Sean's doing it stand. I hope this hope this works out." <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Like my heart, every heartbeat would like the room was feeling expanding and contracting. Isn't that incredible that we have access to all of this? Uh, I've heard it from somebody else, and I've adopted the the term internal technology. So much of our life is so peripheral. You know, we're wrapped up in the cell phones. The obvious thing. It's just so darn sexy and attractive and has there's so many reasons to distract yourself you know and then i think that can kind of atrophy some of the those internal muscles and that that internal landscape little little bits like that i tend to be very valuable you notice that the 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 internal world do you do much exploration into into that space distracted from that man we're so pulled away you know, like that's yeah. where all the magic's really happening. I mean, it, even with the external stuff, it's still all of our internal perception of all that. You know, that's where the magic's yeah. happening. But the yeah, more I did. We a, get I did a away from that. The harder this whole thing gets. I did a uh, vipassana meditation thing, a retreat. It's like a ten day thing. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with it, and uh, or I think you're familiar with it. Uh, if not, here's what it is: you sit and meditate a bunch for ten days, and you go through this particular style of meditation called Vipassana meditation in that they refer to, there's a concept, uh, samskara, the Sanskrit, uh, word, and it means impression. And so are we recording lives, right now, we... Aaron? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're in. All right. This yeah. 20, 20 years, man, I've been doing this meditation <laughs> retreats, meditation, 20 years. All right. Wait, wait, years. I'm sorry. 19 years, but <laughs> I know. Have you done man. Vipassana? Have you done Vipassana? All of it, bro. Oh, good. All I love it. that. That's Multiple amazing. Day retreats, fasting, oh, silent retreats, long ago, oh, before it was good, in good. Bed, You know, <laughs> yes, man. A lot of internal exploration. That's how I got here. I started doing yeah. this shit in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, which is right. not a hub of meditation technology. You know what I mean? Yeah, you were but, definitely N of one yes. out there. Yeah, yeah, man. So the. You know, one of my, my favorite meditations that really helped to change me, even my voice, you know, is mm-hmm. um, the Anahata meditation mm-hmm. that my mother-in-law taught me. 
And uh, so it's a humming. And the crazy thing is now there's this kind of like wave, you know, James uh, Nestor and things like that, but just like humming and nitric oxide production and all this stuff. Like I didn't know that those things were, and also, you know, the ohm sound and the vibration and all this stuff, man. Like it's, that's under, that's the thread of all the stuff that both of, both of us do, you and I. You yeah. know, it's that inner, it's that work it's in the inner technology, the inner terrain. So yeah, yeah. The, the humming, you also can strengthen the the muscles in the throat and the glottis and such to to increase healthy tone, which can also decrease incidence of snoring and obviously just improve the the quality of the tone of your voice. That's something that's that's interesting. Well, well I was going to say with the impression thing, and, and because so much of what you do such an amazing job of is is support people with various different facets of healing, largely through the the anchor of nutrition, but obviously it's so much more than that. Uh, and that that samskara concept or impression, mm-hmm. it's like throughout our lives we experience various different uh, traumatic impressions. You know, happy impressions don't really leave so much of an imprint. You know, it's 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 like a feel good thing. It moves through your body. It's a beautiful experience. It's like it's lovely. It's the ones that make you go. Ugh. And you contract and you hold and you you want to cry, but you don't let it out and you don't feel safe. And, uh, and then you keep yeah. marching through your life and then you build the armor and all that. And if the if the body can be still for enough time and get out of the tools and the periphery, suddenly that internal technology or intelligence starts to come online. And in the, in the Western model of medicine and science and you know, empirical data and, and lab coats and all that stuff, that whole world is is not completely dismissed and it's becoming more observable and studied. Uh, but it's, it's not quite mainstream yet, hmm. you know, and tapping into that internal intelligence of the body, it, it seems like the body has a very strong affinity to heal within itself. Uh, as long as you actually allow yourself the spaciousness to, to listen. What do you think about that? Number one thing, get out of the way, you know, yeah. just create the space. <laughs> Your body knows what to do. You know, your mind knows how to process and sort this stuff out. And yeah. as soon as you said some scar, I just remembered, you know, sometimes we can use these things um, to our disadvantage, you know, even looking for them. You know, like mm-hmm. I remember, you know, if my wife would be upset about something and, you know, my mother-in-law would be like, it's some scar, Jerry. You know, it's her, oh, her Kenyan name is Jerry. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's just like. Uh, it, it's kind of like chill out. It's, it's just this thing, you know, instead of uh, like yeah. create the space, allow it to yeah. process, let's not finger yeah. point and, and, and villainize these things. Because like you said, we're all going to be picking these things up through our lives. It's part of the process, but yeah. the more that we can become graceful with ourselves, like I love, I love that word grace a lot, but just mm-hmm. providing space and grace and patience but we are existing in a world right now in a world sound like a movie uh in a world that is constantly distracting us or we're allowing ourselves to be distracted from creating that space because like Mm -hmm. i said number one rule get out of the way Mm -hmm. your body knows what to do your your mind your brain knows what to do but if we're constantly and there's so much dude there's so much so much going on We've never exi- experienced something like this before. I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about being bored, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, like I was just, I had a lot of times when I was bored, and I remember like saying it, you know, saying it out loud, saying it to my mom, 
you know, saying it to a friend, like I'm bored. We don't get bored anymore. Like we don't have that space. And also that boredom is like, uh, I know our ancestors were bored, you know, from time to time, but it would be an evolutionary thrust. Like, let me go do something constructive, right? When we get bored, we just whip our phone out, right? We get bored. We just like hop on a YouTube or whatever the case might be, throw another series. You have a temporary balm to, to ameliorate that sensation that actually would drive us for action. Exactly. And so what do we do? We end up, a lot of us end up outsourcing our greatness, our, our potential to, you know, somebody else in the screen, you know, watching other people be great instead mm. of really accessing that greatness that's just welling up inside of us. We have yeah. to have that time man. we have to have time to ourselves because there's so much shit rattling around in our heads that if you don't create the space to allow this stuff to process, eventually something is going to bust. Something is going to go off and it's going to force you to slow down and to listen. Yeah. And then that stems into something that I know that you're very enamored with, as am I, is the value of relationships to actually have physiological, structural, cellular effects on and, and effects on our longevity and reducing all cause mortality and you know, cardiovascular disease and just like, like like pretty much anything that's good for the body, having healthy relationships is, is positive for. I heard you mention a study from Brigham Young University. It was like a meta-analysis of 300,000 people. And the suggestion was it was that the healthy relationships was, it was like a 50%. Those with healthy relationships or the healthiest relationships, it was like a 50% decrease in cardiovascular disease and you know, significant, or maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was all cause all mortality. Cause mortality. Including yeah, heart mortality is the thing. Yep. Yeah. Fifty percent. What, what's going on there? What like what do we do? What 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 do we do? What do we do with that information? Mm. Okay. So, and just to clarify what that means, so 150. I'm sorry. It was 148 studies in this meta analysis. Over 300,000 yeah. study participants. People with healthy social bonds had a 50 percent reduction in premature death from everything. Okay. All-cause mortality means 50% reduction in death from everything. That is crazy. There's no, there's no supplement like that. There's no treatment. There's no special class. There's no... It's, it's our relationships. And by the way, they yeah. pointed out, they found that this was more impactful on our health than exercise, than beating obesity, than all these other factors. It is the quality of our relationships. And what it is, yeah. that's a very powerful epigenetic influence or epigenetic input because our environment is determining how our genes are getting expressed internal and external again i don't want to make the distinction between the two over and over again but we have to because a lot of times when we think about environment we think about the outside world but we are a part of that as well we're a part of nature as well but we yeah. as humans we see ourselves different we go out in nature you are nature you know and yeah. so this is all encompassing. This is omnipresent when I'm talking about our environment. And actually, to I haven't talked about this yet, but I don't know if you know about the Dunedin study, by mm -hmm. chance. So mm -hmm. this this has been going on for years. Longitudinal study tracking the same people. And oh, the Harvard was, the Harvard study, the longest longitudinal one or different no, one. That's that's my guy Waldinger at Harvard, right? Which they have another really great longitudinal study. This one was yeah. done by researchers in New Zealand, but, and they tracked from, from birth 
All right, the, te the test subjects coming out of the womb, track them all the way through for decades. And of course, they, these kids went off to all these different parts of the world and they would fly them in, whether they moved to Costa Rica or they moved to Alaska every year, check in on their biometrics, all their data, their successes, their failures, their struggles. You know, some people, you know, obviously passed away. Here's one of the craziest things found in this study that is not talked about. Yes, of course. Again, same thing, relationships, top tier of importance. But what they pointed out was how powerful our mindset is and how we age. Our beliefs oh, about sure. aging and ourselves yeah. has a huge role in how we're aging and how functional and healthy we are. It's our perception yeah. of ourselves and what is, quote, supposed to happen. And yeah. if you think about that, it's like a very logical um phenomenon, which is our thoughts create chemistry in our bodies. Our thoughts change what's happening in our bodies instantaneously. And I've had yeah. a couple of conversations with Bruce Lipton about this. He's a cell biologist. Really, the person from my perspective who put epigenetics into popular culture, the the, the awareness of it. And in, in, in these conversations, he kept on referring me back to when I would talk about things like nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics and how our food impacts our genetic expression, our relationships, all these things. And he's like, yeah, Sean, yeah, Sean, but the mind first, the mind first. He, he always brings me back to that. He never lets me get away from it is our mind first and foremost, because our mind determines our perception of the food we're eating. Yeah. Our mind determines the perception of our, the quality of our relationships. We can have an awesome relationship, all right? I could be an, a great dad doing all the things, love the shit out of my kids. Just, But then, you know, one of my kids can be like, you know what? You weren't there for me when I needed you in seventh grade. And, you know, Billy hit me with the wiffle ball bat or whatever it is, you know? And the, I just thought about wiffle ball bat because of Beastie Boys song. I don't know if you know, you know, he did it like this, did it like that, did a wiffle. Yeah. So anyways, but they can have a story, a perception about me as a parent that might not necessarily be advantageous for them and make them suffer because, you know, no, no matter how good I am, it is their perception of me that is going to determine their outcomes. Now, here's the yeah. reason why this matters. And why he kept pointing me back to this. So even in my university level biology classes and, you know, I had nutritional science and all these different classes that I paid good money for. And I was kind of miseducated because we we're missing the point on something. But we're taught this, this framework of DNA to RNA to protein, DNA to RNA to protein. So our proteins, like when we see each other right now, we're seeing basic, mainly proteins that have been printed out or copies that are getting printed out based on the genetic blueprint. And what Bruce shared with me is that one epigenetic input, all right, so which could be a food, it could be a thought, can change the proteins that are getting printed. It can create up to 3,000 variations of the proteins getting printed from one gene. This is why we are all so different, why we have so much variety in our outcomes, in our temperament, in our health. It's because of how many variations can happen with what genes are getting, I'm sorry, which proteins are getting printed out. 
And so just to encapsulate all this, number one, mind first, because our mind is determining, even if we're eating, quote, bad food, what the data shows is that if you're in a, a high state you know, of, of happiness and you know, you're more in this parasympathetic state you know, amongst friends and feeling good, even a, quote, bad food will not impact you negatively or as negatively as when we tend to eat, quote, bad food, st- quote, stress eating. I threw a lot of quotes unnecessarily. Stress eating is a real phenomenon in our world today. But we tend to do that when we're stressed and it tends to add on to the stress versus the best time to eat something, you know, extraordinary that might not be necessarily good for you is when you're in a high state, when you feel good because your perception is impacting how that food is going to interact with your cells. So I hope all that makes sense. Do you do you know much around the how our our mental emotional state affects assimilation and absorbability of nutrients and proteins and things of the like? Because I know that that's a thing. I just don't have enough information in my mind to say anything really super intelligent about it. I, I pointed out a couple of these things in the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, but it was vi- they were subtle. Now we do have more data affirming this. You know. P- I'll give you the big overarching piece, which is, and I'm, I'm trending into food. By the way, I'm taking all of this and like that. We're, we're going. I promise. There's a, there's a path and into, into uh, there's a path and, forward and cooking and yeah and and bringing family together and 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 things of the like. So just to put a kind of overarching understanding of this first and foremost, our nervous system. There's really two tracks. All right. It's kind of like your computer on or off, you know, switching over binary, parasympathetic, sympathetic. And the sympathetic, it gets this nickname fight or flight. It isn't just about that, though. It is more catabolic. Absolutely. It's it's doing stuff. It's it's living. It's active. And if we're in too much of that and we never switch over to recovery, things can go bad. Yes, absolutely. But we need that sympathetic. Uh, kind of activity. Parasympathetic has the nickname rest and digest for a reason. All right. What we see, and again, we do have published data on this, improved assimilation of nutrients, improved digestion, improved uh, elimination as well. And part of this has to do with a couple of changes with certain hormones we've identified like oxytocin, but this is the overarching look at it. Now let's look at some of the inputs specifically. And actually, I'm going to share a specific study with you from the book because it is the, we have this phenomenon called stress eating, but you can also be eating stress, if that makes sense. All right. So let me explain what I mean by that. There is a big difference in food inputs as far as like where they're coming from because synthetic newly invented versions of certain Nutrients we deem to be critical for our health, like vitamin E, for example, which vitamin E is critical for our cardiovascular system, our cognitive performance, our skin health. Like it's involved in a lot of stuff. But when you get a multi quote multivitamin, last time I'm going to use quotes, uh, a quote multivitamin, which I was taught in my nutritional science class. You know, if you're going to be working with patients, always recommend people take a multivitamin. Right. Yeah. 
And it's so short-sighted because it's it's synthetic versions of those nutrients. And we weren't taught. And this is where I was saying earlier that I was wildly miseducated because there's multiple forms of vitamin E. There's multiple forms of vitamin C. There's multiple forms of vitamin D. There's multiple forms of B12. The list goes on and on. It's not just one thing. So if we have this synthetic isolated version of that nutrient, is that the one that you need? And is that the one that your cells can actually utilize? And so this particular study, this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it found that natural food-based vitamin E is nearly twice as bioavailable as synthetic vitamin E. All right. So like your cell, what bioavailable means? Your cells can actually use it to do cool shit. All right. Yeah, they can identify it. It's like a it's like a friend that they that they have a rapport and relationship with comes in compared to a stranger. Where you're like, okay, like we can navigate this relationship, but I got we have some we have some kinks to work out. We got to figure this out. The synthetic version is like you know a guy with the, with a trench coat on. You don't know what the fuck is under there. Yeah, be surprised. <laughs> you don't you don't know. All right, <laughs> but here's the bottom line. You know, with this kind of conversation about the state that we're in and all these kind of things. If we're bringing in fake elements or newly invented synthetic elements that we label, we call food, but it's food-like. It isn't real food. And this is going to, it's going to inherently incite this sympathetic aspect of our nervous system. I don't talk about this much, but even the act of eating itself is inherently going to be stressful on our bodies. Even if the food is absolutely amazing. That's why you have to have this kind of grace and counterbalance because and the reason is we're taking something from the outside world and putting it into our bodies. Our, our, our genes take that, our, our DNA takes that very seriously because through our evolution, we put something in our, in our mouth, we could die. Like it ha- your immune system has to be front and center, ready to roll because we don't know what this fool is putting in here right now, Right. And so there is a heightened activity of our immune system that we see. But funny enough, and I mentioned this actually in my first book uh, years ago in Sleep Smarter, I shared this really interesting study on once, once we venture into obesity, we see an even greater activity of our immune system after eating a meal, Upper, upwards of like 50% more immune activity, right? And it's because we already have this underlying state of inflammation that's, that's inherently going to be higher. Because our, our cells, our fat cells are, are carrying more stuff. They're carrying more energy and carrying energy for that long, which we never evolved doing. It is essentially sending out a false distress signal to our immune system in a way. And it's just keeping our immune system more active. It's kind of like those, our cells are infected. And it's just like what your, your, your biology is trying to figure out like, why is, why is there only feast and no famine now? Like it's just always this state. So there, maybe there's something wrong. So, um, but to, to put the cherry on top of this sentiment, which is if we are more mindful of this, that this process can be uh, stimulating for our immune system, inherently kind of inflammatory and sympathetic, Put do our best to put ourselves in a parasympathetic balance so that we can gracefully transition. And how do we do that? Well, the research indicates one of the best ways to do that is actually sitting down, slowing down, and eating with friends, eating with yeah. family, eating Jeez. with people that you care about and like. Because I shared four or five 
peer-reviewed studies on the influence of our environment, specifically eating with people that we care about and our health outcomes. And I've been out here like screaming this from the mountaintops because it should blow our minds. But at the same time, I'm, I'm still shocked that so many people are not educated about this. And, you know, I'd love to share those studies if we get a second. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's interesting as you're, as you're talking about eating with people and how it being more, you know, in, in inducing or trending towards um, being in more parasympathetic tone or favoring parasympathetic tone as you're if you're with people one you're taking your eyes into more of a panoramic focus so you're taking your eyes probably out of your phone or out of the tv or like myopically focused you're probably taking in the room you're kind of looking around you're 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 feeling you know connected with someone which has you know all of the all the different different components of that but also in communication you are extending your exhalation. It's communications is a form of, of humming or toning. You know, so you're you're activating all those vocal cords. It's it's and you're extending that exhalation, which that's the exhalation is tied in with the parasympathetic, the inhalation is tied in with the sympathetic. Both are really valuable. But if you do a long oh hum, that's not that much different than talking for an extended period of time to someone that you care about. And so it's interesting when you start looking at kind of like the the physiological effects of just being a human, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 how that how that impacts you. And it's like, wow, if you put the body into a more parasympathetic, easeful state, suddenly you're able to digest better, which is just naturally inherently what you do when you're just hanging out with friends or family. And we evolved doing that. And, and then you could stack that with doing it outside. And now suddenly you have sunlight on your skin. Now you're getting all these beta endorphins that are naturally induced as a product of the sun being on the skin. Now you're maybe taking in the panorama. Maybe you're looking up into the sky. You know, maybe you're now you're breathing in the various different chemicals coming off of the plants, and you're having this whole orchestra starts transpiring within yourself just by doing something as simple as first it was with people inside. Amazing, love everything about that. Now we stacked another variable. Now we just take our bodies outside. And it's like you can just stack these variables and make like a little health-inducing variable sandwich. I think that's the move. I love that. (laughs) I love that. I want to take a moment and share a free resource with y'all to sort out your movement. That is starting the first free week of the Align Method online program where you get a thorough movement assessment to establish what is your personal movement baseline. And then on top of that, we share fundamental mobility techniques that will make a massive difference in your own personal practice. If you do any type of stretching or yoga or foam rolling or resistance band training or training in general, you want to get the most out of your body. These are must know mobility techniques. And then it finishes with a sit rise challenge. So you can test yourself and see how effectively you get up and down off of the ground. That is the first week of the Align Method Online program. It's a six-week program. You can start the first week at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. And with that, you will also join the free Align community where there's over 3,000 other members in there. So I pop in there each day, totally free. The first week is totally free. And then if you don't love the idea of continuing on with the six-week program, then you can cancel anytime. So check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. I want to take a moment and share one of the only supplements that I brought with me on my last trip. I was away for a month and I brought a month supply of AG1. It's something that I took 
every single morning. I've been taking it every morning for the last couple of years. Something that I heard about originally through Andrew Huberman and gave it a try and I really dig it. The reason I like it is it is an all-in-one stop to get your vitamins, minerals, and also probiotics in the morning. So if you are lugging around a bunch of supplements like I have historically, this is a great way to lighten your load. It also tastes delicious. One of the things that I do is I put it in a blender with some ice, I blend it up, and it just tastes incredible. Sometimes I'll add a little electrolytes in there as well, and I feel great. My mind feels sharp afterwards, and it is an amazing asset to bring with you traveling. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and also get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you gotta do is go to drinkag1.com slash align. That's drinkag1.com slash align. Hope you guys enjoy. Yeah, you know, for me, one of the things that I tend to do is just look like, you know, yes, we have these new innovations and that's awesome. And what has helped us to get here and to be the incredibly resilient species that we've been, that we are now is kind of devolving, but how, what, what are the things that got us here? And one of those things is we did food together. You know, we had this yeah. tribal construct, all aspects of this process were done together. We're hunting together, we're procuring food together, gathering food, uh, preparing the food, eating together definitely, because that was a time of lineage, of, of culture being passed on from one generation to the next. Before the advent of books, that's how lessons of humanity and survival and empowerment were shared with the next generation. And if you look at the definition of the word culture, culture is the shared values attitudes, beliefs, and, and behaviors practiced by a group of people passed on from one generation to the next. That's what it is. Yeah. So culture was getting passed on around food, food and celebration. I just came back from my first time visiting Hawaii and I saw this dramatization of this thing that we've been doing forever in the form of this luau. And, you know, people are like, you know, you pay money or whatever and you're watching this, but this is how it was. You know, yeah. we've got the food that was hunted and gathered and prepared and all the things and we're eating together and we're storytelling and dancing and celebration and music and all these things. These were inputs that our ancestors experienced for centuries, for thousands yeah. of years. Yeah. And then we had our family structures, our tribal structure was fractured. You know, we started to have neighborhoods, but we, even within that, we still had extended family within proximity but it's further been uh, divided where a lot of times we're not near extended family. And now just within the last couple of decades, right, really strongly the last 20 years, we're even fractured within our own household with our nuclear family because sure. everybody is on our devices, yeah. right? And our devices have divided us completely. And so we're also, we're not even just divided from the people in our household, we're divided from ourselves. We're no yeah. longer examining or present with our internal terrain. We're so externally focused in these portals to alternate realities, you know? Yeah. And so my question was us moving further and further apart like that, is that affecting our health outcomes? And the data indicates absolutely. And so just in the vein of food, uh, one study was published in Nutrition Journal. This was in 2018. And they found that people who consistently eat, eat in isolation, oftentimes in front of a, a, a screen, a device, do in fact have poor food quality and 
have significantly lower intake of essential nutrients that help to prevent diseases. And that again, that's kind of a overarching um, discovery. But if you dig in and look even closer, some researchers at Harvard were collecting data for years on eating behaviors and uh, family interactions. All right. And they found that people who eat together with their families on a consistent basis had significantly higher intake of essential nutrients, but specifically they mentioned fruits and vegetables, significantly higher, and by nature, more essential nutrients that help to prevent diseases in those people. And they had less consumption of ultra-processed foods, namely chips and soda. And also they, they specifically noted kind of detrimental compounds in ultra-processed foods that these people are not eating as much. There's something about eating together where our food choices tend to be better. This isn't all the way, always the case, by the way. But one of the reasons why is that if we know that we're having family dinner on Monday and Wednesday, like there's subconsciously, you're going to be planning that. Like we know, okay, I know we're eating together on Monday and Wednesday. So what are we eating? Right. Yeah. Versus like what happens a lot today. And I know this, it's happened to us many times as well. Like we'll kind of stumble in like, oh shit, it's dinner time. Like I got to feed these kids. You know, you got all this stuff going on and now we got DoorDash, we got Uber Eats, we got Postmates, we got so many things and they can bring that food right to your door. Now, of course, there are food choices that are higher quality. You know, we could we could do that and still sit down and eat together, which we've done many times on our scheduled yeah. days to eat together. But here's why that matters practically. Like, what does the data say? Okay. And I'm going to share two studies. One of them is done on kids and the other is done on adults. All right. The one on kids was published in the journal Pediatrics. And they found that eating together with your kids three meals a week or more leads to significantly decreased development of obesity in those children, significantly decreased development of disordered eating in those children as well. All right. Versus kids who eat with their parents less than three times a week. All right. We start to see obesity and disordered eating go up precipitously. And what is that? Why is that? Again, like we'll, we'll, we'll circle back and talk about that. But as far as the adults are concerned, and there are many other studies, I'm just sharing a couple of them from the new East Smarter Family Cookbook. The other one is done on office workers at IBM. And what they found was that, and this was published in the journal Family and Consumer Sciences. And what they found was that as long as these tech workers were able to make it home and have dinner with the family on a consistent basis, regardless of how stressed their workload was making them, regardless of how stressful work was, stress remained negligible. They were able to basically neutralize stress, process stress, and work morale stayed high. Stress stayed manageable, and obviously productivity stayed high as well. But as soon as other obligations cut into their ability to eat dinner with their family on a consistent basis, stress levels crept up in a way that was no longer manageable. Work morale goes down. Productivity, obviously, again, goes down. They're setting themselves up for a potential problem. And what is that problem? According to a study published in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, up to 80% of physician visits today are for stress-related diseases. Stress is like that thing. It's, it seems invisible. I can't eat stress. I'm not necessarily smelling stress. But yeah, you can. You can eat stress. You can smell stress. Things could be, a, there's a whole inhalation toxicology journal, right? All of these inputs can be stressful in our bodies. And we have each of us an overall stress load, 
right? Mm-hmm. So psychological stressors, work stress, relationship stress, food stress, the list goes on and on. It's going to be different for each of us. But it's basically, if you think about stress and how we interact with it, a stressor, we need stress, by the way. We need stress to survive. We need stress to get better. And we put this kind of like exercise is a hormetic stressor, potentially. All right. So this is like when you exercise, you're like digging a hole. And when you allow yourself to recover, you're like adding back, covering that hole, plus a little bit more. Right. And so next time you try to dig in there, you got a higher level of resilience. And if you are actively engaging in stress and allowing your body to recover, next thing you know, you could build up a mountain. And certain shit just doesn't affect you like other people because you've been able to process that stress and make yourself a more resilient creature. Yeah. Now, for a lot of us, we just keep fucking digging that hole and digging that hole and digging that hole. And eventually we jump our ass in the hole, right? Because we're not allowing ourselves to process our stress. And, you know, somebody who's in that state where they're just kind of barely getting by, like they'll dig a hole and like barely fill it back up again. And then you add on top of that, oh, you know what? I, I want to get fit. And I know, you know, I sent my friend got fit by training for a marathon. So I'm about to train for a marathon. That's not appropriate for you. Because that you add that stressor on top of all the other shit you're not dealing with, you can break the system, you know? And so all that to say, last part, cherry on top, putting all this together, there's something healing and regenerative for us, our systems, our bodies, our minds, and our spirits, when we take the time to eat with our friends and family. Our genes expect us to do this because we evolved doing that for so long. It's a chance, and if we talk about why we see a reduction in incidence of disordered eating, for example, it's a chance for modeling behavior. It's a chance to see your significant other, to see your children, for them to see you, and even addressing that deep psychological human need to feel seen, to feel a sense of significance that so often is not getting addressed today because we're looking at other people through these screens and the comparison is just running hot as hell. And not really, again, we're, we're fighting to feel seen and to feel like we matter. We do these very strange things just to try to get noticed, you know? And so you're feeding that psychological need for the people in your life. And the same thing with you. When you put the devices, when you make it a phone-free zone, you guys sit down together and get real FaceTime because a lot of our communication also, as you know this too, it's not verbal. Most of our communication is nonverbal. So you can really pick up subtleties and how the people that you care about are feeling, what's going on, and being able to address the monster while it's small versus letting it become, you know, um, Godzilla or whatever eventually, which is very yeah. difficult to take out. You got to get King Kong on the recruitment, you know, and then the whole, you can fuck up the whole city, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So these are some of the kind of underlying reasons why this is effective. We mentioned oxytocin, the switch over to the parasympathetic and addressing our psychological needs as well. Yeah. So for, a, I mean, it seems like a big part of, you know, with the whole training and I like the digging of a hole analogy, and then you get a little bit extra mound on top every time you do it, but it's a, it's the cyclical nature of that is the thing that's really valuable. And there's, and there's invaluable steps in that process of the refilling of that hole. And when we miss that, you know, that's where it becomes problematic. And a lot of those steps 
are really super simple. They've just been largely outsourced in modernity, but it's not a problem. Like it's actually not, I think it's so easy to romanticize the past and just like we're doing everything wrong. It's, it's like, it's, it's like not a problem. It's just, we used to walk more because we had to hunt and gather or persistence hunt or whatever we were doing, building shelter, squatting, squatting, lunging, you know, things like looking out in the distance, seeing if there's weather coming. We don't need to be as, uh, in a generalized way, intelligent <clears throat> as we once did, because we can outsource a lot of that intelligence to technology to protect us and provide for us. But it really still comes back to like very simple values and very simple principles. It's just like, get your body outside with more regularity, take your shoes off every now and again, get around some trees, jump in a body of water, maybe get hot, maybe get cold, spend time with people that you care about, work on your internal world, work on your relationship with others and how you relate to other people, you know, work on purpose and value and like feeling seen, feeling heard. And then really simple stuff in the realm of like food, like make sure that the food is basic things comes from close to the ground you could say or you know the food that doesn't have a bunch of words that you don't understand the meaning of them and it's like it's like it's it's very actually simple and sometimes i i feel a little turned off by not from anything that you said but in general like the romantic the romanticizing of the past like i feel like we're in it like this is not a like nothing is a problem emf wi-fi just go outside, hang out by some trees. Like it's, it's, it's not that as bad as I think we make. And then you can get into the conversation around like being in like food deserts and being in, in cities and places alike where now in poverty, now suddenly it does become actually a more major conversation. Um, but so all that aside and feel free to comment on any of that, but I feel like you've, you've commented on, on quite a bit of that, but, but the uh, depression, anxiety, um, you know, mood, I think is a big thing. And if a person feels like they're in a dark hole, typically the general tendency is they're going to probably want to stay in that dark hole, you know, and they're going to want to go deeper into their cell phone and they're going to go deeper into, um, cravings of sugars or, you know, fats or things that feel like, like kind of immediate gratification. Is there a path, a nutritional path that you, perhaps discuss in Eat Smarter, uh, the cookbook that you've put out or just in your own life or research, a nutritional path towards starting to bring a person out of a hole of, say, depression or anxiety? It's a great question. And you just gave a great, this is so profound what you just said. Actually, this ties back to the domain of physics, you know, looking at kinetic energy and potential energy and all those things and like Truly, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Objects at rest yeah. tend to stay at rest. Yeah. We've all probably experienced it's more difficult. If you've been lounging around all day, you know, for, you know, 16 hours or on a bunch of flights, it can sometimes take more of like kind of trying to dig deep just to go out, go for a walk. And like, unless it's like already cemented, this is what I'm doing, like you already have that. And when you're doing, when you're just in your own routine and you're able to do the things that your movement practices you usually do, it's just, it seems very easy, right? It's just, again, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. If we're talking about de depression and being at rest or going kind of like you just said in this, in, in this darkness into this uh, seclusion, whatever the case might be, we tend to stay there. And this doesn't mean that it's wrong. This doesn't mean that, you know, any of this stuff, like you said, romanticizing the past, we could still eat the pizza. We could still binge watch the show. We could still, yeah, no problem. you know, whatever the thing is, 
And if you want to feel good and be healthy as a, as a human being whose genes expect certain things, you have to provide these other inputs. It's cool. We can have these newer inputs, but there's certain things that are required. We know we, we know very little as a species, but we do know that certain things create conditions for better health and the prevention of disease onset, which a lot of times, and this is kind of tying full circle with, with the depression, a lot of these symptoms, and by the way, uh, one of my friends, Dr. Christopher Palmer, another researcher at Harvard, um, psychiatrist, and he shared a study with me that was an analysis looking at long-term effects, benefits of conventional treatments for depression. And the data concluded that only about 10% of people who seek out conventional treatment conventional, you know, psychotherapy, medication, only about 10% have a resolution of their depression. Wow. 10%. So 90% do not get a resolution. Jeez. We do see a reduction in some of the symptoms, but they're still classified at about 30% more. All right. But it's still a battle on and off. For most people, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that's just the facts. And instead, what we do is we keep throwing these medication tipped darts at people's brains to see like, will this thing stick? You know, I was just talking to a parent, you know, they get, just put their kid, he's on his fourth medication for anxiety. He just turned 11. He just turned 11. And, you know, just like, well, this one didn't work or this one worked for a while. These symptoms, these symptom clusters today, because of standard of care, and not only are our physicians trained to think a certain way, if they go outside of that, they can lose their license. And so they have to follow this treatment protocol if this person is presenting these the symptom cluster, these type of symptoms. And then you get the label, right? This person is depressed. You have anxiety. Yeah. And then now that becomes your identity as well, which is a whole other scary, complicated part of this whole thing. Instead of understanding truly, going back to Bruce Lipton and again, really father of epigenetics for popular culture in particular, getting this information. And he shared with me, and you know, again, anybody can go and look into this data. He's like, Sean, less than 1% of our diseases today are for true genetic defects. Most people are born with a good set of genes. What is really determining their health outcomes are their environmental influences, internal and external. Keep that in mind. That's determining what's happening with their health. And so he shared with me, because whenever we would talk about diseases, again, he'd redirect my attention. There aren't genes that code for diseases. There isn't a fucking diabetes gene. There isn't an obesity gene. Like the FTO gene was identified. Oh, this gene, so many people that have the gene are not obese. And people who don't have the gene are obese. Like one of the recent studies actually, and if you'll allow me, I'm going to pull this study up because- I want to share this. All right, here we go. Ooh, this is so good. All right. (laughs) This study was published in PLOS One, Public Library of Science One, one of our top medical journals. The title of the study is, listen to this, drum roll please. Genetic factors are not the major causes of chronic diseases. Sure. This has been known. This paper has been out for about 10 years. 
all this great research, huge analysis, but it doesn't fit into the popular narrative, which is like, this is not your fault. None of these things have anything to do with you. You got bad genes. It's your genes. And so you are a victim. There's nothing you could do about it. And it is what it is. And I'm telling you this because that happened to me. When I was 20, I was diagnosed with this so-called incurable arthritic condition of my spine. I broke my hip at track practice. My bones were so brittle. I had severe degenerative disc disease. So much so that my spine, according to the physician, was the spine of an 80-year-old man when I was 20. And my disc, looking at them on the MRI, my L4, L5, S1 disc were black. Okay? There was no juiciness. There was you couldn't see the light shining through them. Cut to 10 years later, my spine was younger than that of the average 30-year-old. Crazy. I went from debilitating pain. I'm talking like I was afraid to stand up because the pain was, it would go to a level 10 for half a second, but that is enough to scare the shit out of you. And so let alone exercise, you kidding me? Going from that to deadlifting, you know, 405, you know, four plates, you know, whatever. And all the things, man, just like all these things that were supposed to be done, I was able to do, right? Because it wasn't my genes, I was not broken. He told me that it it was incurable, right? This is something that just happens. But the reality was these inputs that I was giving my body and giving my body a chance getting out, getting out of the way because every sip of Hawaiian punch that I was drinking was getting in the way. Every uh, two for 99 cent taco from Jack in the Box was getting in the way. Every one of my toxic 24-7 thoughts, why me? Why does my life suck? Why won't anybody help me? I am such a mess. I am disgusting. I am worthless. All these yeah. things that I'm batting, battling internally are pro. My all every cell is listening to that information, right? And so, here's where we get the resolution and to ultimately um, address this. When we see a symptom present, when we have an alteration, because I'm going to shift over to de- to de- uh, depression in just a second, but diabetes is a good example. There's a well, recent all tied together. Yeah. You know, dis-ease eventually is going to arise in the mental emotional landscape as well, you know, or vice versa or whatever, but it's it's all integrated. Precisely. We can't make the distinction between the mind and body. That's yeah. ridiculous. There it's it's yeah. all together in the same human. Now, there's a paper recently published called and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, all right? Top top, top top. Uh medical journal. And the paper is 200 years of diabetes. Diabetes was pretty consistent for almost all of that 200 years. Then about 40 or 50 years ago, something really strange happened. And in that time span, from then into the publishing of the paper, diabetes in our population essentially quadrupled. Quadrupled. All right, something happened. We could say, again, we have this diabetes gene, and that's really what it is. Or we can understand what is happening is our gene expression is changing. DNA to RNA to protein. We're printing out different proteins for different processes. And our bodies are adapting. What a disease really is at its core, if we want to reframe and looking at look at it with more accurate perspective, it's yeah. an adaptation. It's an adaptation. By our bodies to it's continue trying to, protect, to, it's function, trying to, protect you. 
to continue to function under unideal circumstances. Yeah. If we're talking about diabetes, which that unideal which is, circumstance. Which is a, it's a massive reframe of perspective. I think that's like a really valuable perspective change of if a person is holding on to excess adipose or holding on to excess inflammation or, you know, X, Y, Z condition or dis-ease, instead of looking, perceiving the body as your foe and like this stranger and you need to reach out to some savior, some to, 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 you know, save you from yourself, essentially just this, the subtle reframe of, of this is information my body is communicating to me and it's actually uh, engage you doing this, engaging the stimulus, whatever the thing is as a adaptive protective mechanism to allow me to keep going forward yes. in these ideal conditions. My yes. body is on my team. Yes. It's a I very different be. perspective. Anything else is abandoning logic. <laughs> because our bodies and we have this new epidemic of autoimmune conditions where again we're being inundated with and there are right now we're we're right around we're getting close to about a hundred million Americans dealing with some form of autoimmune condition. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, my immune system is trying to fuck me up. My my own immune system is fighting me. But we know we have so this is not new. We've had all this data on things like molecular mimicry. On conditions like you know Hashimoto's and you know uh, different forms of arthritis, like the one that I had, where there's an autoimmune component to it, and we we're not asking the question why, why is my immune system acting this way? Because that immune system, whether I believe it or not or understand it or not, helped me help my ancestors to get to this place where I can even exist. My immune system wasn't fucking me up or my ancestors prior to now. What is happening? What's going on with my environment that's making these, these symptoms manifest? And so again, bottom line, and then the transition to, to depression, we're seeing an adaptation for our bodies to keep us alive, to continue to function under unideal circumstances. Yeah. And so with what we label as a, a mental health issue, unfortunately, when we had the serotonin, the serotonin theory of uh, depression, which is, it was right. disproven like 30 years ago, by the way. But now just in 2022, we had another paper, meta-analysis, looking at serotonin treatment and just finding again, this is largely, largely un unsuccessful because we're looking at something in isolation and we are remarkably complex in our chemistry as a species. And so... What if we ask why, like why is or why are these symptoms presenting? Some things can, even though they might be more complicated to unearth or to un uncover or understand, they're still there. We we live in a in a we live in a universe of causality, cause and effect. There's always a reason why. This could be from a traumatic experience, this could be from something subtle, this could be from you know, a lots and lots of small cuts, right? Yeah. But if we don't take the time to investigate and instead seek to treat a symptom or sink, seek to hide from the thing, we're going to continue to be in that, in that state. We need conditions. We need support. We need love. We need attention. All the things, absolutely. But most importantly, we have to investigate. We can't just say this thing just happened. This is who I am. 
I am just a depressed person. I know what that's like. I know what it's like. I was by myself. I was diagnosed with a so-called incurable disease. I was supposed to be the first person in my family to graduate from college and to be successful and all these things. I had nothing. I had nobody. I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor in Ferguson, Missouri. Didn't know how I was going to pay my rent in chronic pain. And I just, man, like I didn't, I didn't really even know if I was going to keep going, to be honest. Like I just didn't know. Like, what's the point? So I know what that's like. But all of those things that I was experiencing, all those external symptoms, and I'm just going to be honest with you, for, for everybody who's experiencing that state, it was all leading, it was all leading me back to me and to my, to my gift, to my greatness. Yep. So all of this, I, we all have so much beauty within us. But a lot of times we don't have that beauty without contrast. We don't even know what it is. And so some of the most remarkable people go through the most challenging things. And if we just attach to the story and we attach to the bad thing, we never get a chance to investigate and to ask a higher quality question, which was for me, what changed everything was I asked a couple of things. One of them, instead of why me, I ask, what can I do? What can I do to feel better? That was the first domino. Eventually that question became, how can I be the healthiest person in the world? Something completely ridiculous and audacious, but it started to change my perspective. Hmm. And it landed me, again, shooting for the moon, landed me amongst the stars kind of thing, but also asking, what is this depression trying to teach me? What is this trying to teach me? Because I have the answer. No fucking body outside of myself can tell me. Nobody has the answer but me. So people can help me to maybe investigate and ask certain questions, but the answer is within me. The condition is within me. We've been so disempowered to keep seeking outside of ourselves to, for our wellness. And so asking, what, what is this de depression trying to teach me? And Again, an audacious question, what is the gift in this? Yeah. What is the gift in this? And having the, having the audacity and the courage to step into that, to walk forward into that, because I promise you, life is, is, life is so much more wonderful than we, than we acknowledge a lot of times because we get caught in our thing. But also, we don't want to leave here with all these gifts that we've been innate. They might be dormant within us, but we don't want to leave here with these gifts still inside of us. Yeah, it feels like I mean, like, like it, it, that analogy of a relationship seems really apparent. Where if you're in a relationship with someone, maybe like a romantic relationship, or mother, mother, child, whatever, the there will be certain signals that will arise in if there is some miscommunication or there's parts that haven't been of that person where they don't feel quote unquote seen or heard. And they feel maybe left out or they feel like there's some part that they're just not being listened to. And it might not, depending upon the quality of communication that you have between the two partners, if you have really, if you have deep trust and you have uh, effective communication skills, you probably won't have as many inflammatory blowups. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have little skirmishes, some stuff happens, but then you tend to it. 
it's I think it's the same thing with the, the the relationship a person has with their body, and the body is attempting to communicate these different things. And if you are not listening, those small scale skirmishes will start to turn into battles, and those battles will start to turn into wars. And then eventually, it's like there's blood and flames, and it's just like this whole thing. And you're like, and now at the root of that, there was just actually something that wanted to be heard, you know, or some subtle shift that it started off as just this, this little, little creature just kind of lurking around like, Hey, like, you know, here I am. And then eventually it's a monster, but it comes down into listening. And I think that listening also could be, you seem like an esoteric kind of metaphysical listening in the sense of, you know, mindfulness or meditation or taking some journey to Peru or whatever, but also listening could be seeing a physical therapist or seeing a manual therapist or going to get an MRI, going to get an x-ray, going to get blood work, going to get a, you know, study your, your stool, you know, study your saliva, like all of that, you're, you're gathering data and you're saying like, okay, like body, I'm listening, I'm here for you. I'm listening. You know, and I'm meditating and I'm, I'm, I'm actually in using that internal technology. But like, there's a lot of different angles of listening. If the concept of mindfulness makes anyone uncomfortable, which I'm sure nobody listen to this would, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of listening out there. Yeah. You know, once we get to that place where the monster is wrecking the city, it's very difficult if it's us, if it's happening within us for us to be like, this monster has a root. Like there's a, there's at that point, we're just like, this is total destruction. Don't tell me about taking a fucking walk like that. Yeah, right. It's like, that's not, that's not going to help me. Can't you yeah. see the city is getting destroyed? Yeah. Right. And to give an example specifically, even talking about walking as a little bit of a joke, but matter of fact, there was a huge meta-analysis published in the BMJ. This was 1,039 studies looking at conventional treatments for depression Psychotherapy, drugs, and exercise. Yeah, exercise is a big one. All right. 1,039 studies published in the British Medical Journal, top five medical journal, top five dead or alive. All right. Here's what they found these researchers found that exercise was 1.5 times more effective at bringing about a resolution to depressive symptoms than drugs or conventional psychotherapy. Not to negate, even as I said this multiple times, not to negate where their benefit can be with drugs, with psychotherapy. But the data, the one of the biggest, most robust set of data ever compiled says exercise just works better. It just does. Yeah. Now here's where all this matters. Are you doing it? When we're trying to, again, drip, Give me the drug or I need to, usually if we are working with good, even as you mentioned, physical therapy, right? Usually when we're working with a practitioner, if they're really good at what they do, they're pointing us back to as a city's getting destroyed, this realization that, oh, wow, like there is a root to this, right? But it's still bringing us back to ourselves when we get caught up in this is unstoppable. You don't understand. Yeah. And so- what can tend to happen when we hear even a, a very affirmative study like that is, well, I exercise every day, but I'm still depressed. Hmm. There's a couple of things here. Number one, where would you be without the exercise? Probably worse. Number two, this does not say that exercise solves everything completely. That's silly pants. Because 
What we're looking at is stacking conditions in your favor, making sure that we are addressing the inputs of the mind and body that that code for, that express health or the, the state that we feel better in. And we've also got to understand, like, for example, somebody could have that comeback, you know, that what about is, well, I still have, I'm still, you know, depressed. What is your relationship? What, what is your relationship with yourself look like? What is your relationship with other people? What does your yeah. sleep look like? What does your relationship with stress look like? What is your relationship with stress, your perception? What does your yeah. nutrition look like? Right? What is your, what is your sense of purpose? Do you feel like you are, are doing what you're, what you were born to do, what you feel good about? Like, is there, are the things that are out of alignment? Because this society today, sometimes we can get caught up in, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but your spirit could be yelling at you that no, 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 yeah. you are, you're a dancer. Like that is what makes you feel alive. But society has told you that you need to work in, you know, this particular office and you need to do this job, whatever, because it's safe. Right? So we've got to address the other parts of you, which you're a complex, beautiful, incredible human being. Start checking those boxes, make sure we're addressing those things. And what tends to happen 99% of the time is the, 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 the depressive symptoms start to alleviate. And if there is a monster beneath all of this, it starts to present. And we yep. start to see it with more clarity, with more patience, with, with a renewed sense of being able to actually process this thing, reframe it, and let it go. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, we got to wrap up soon. Is it okay if we, I, there's a, a couple quick questions that I'd love to, to ask if it's, if it's all right. We got like five minutes. Let's do it. All right. Uh, first thing that I'm curious about, something that, that I heard you recently talking about was um, inflammation of the hypothalamus and that being associated, associated to belly fat and uh, inflammation, I'm sure throughout the whole body with the brain, uh, which tie into everything that we're talking about. Um, is there, what are some remedies for uh, reducing said inflammation? And I, and I wonder, I think also within that, I think I heard you mentioning something around olive oil. I'm very interested in like the health benefits of, of olive oil because I'm, I'm Greek and like mm -hmm. general, you know, Western European mm -hmm. mutt. Uh, and I just like, I happily will drink a gallon of olive oil in a week. Uh, I don't probably actually do that, but if I did, I don't, it would be, it would be a good week. <laughs> and much of what I've learned growing up is like, that would be a big problem. That's probably a gallon of olive oil in a week. I'm not condoning that or whatever, but, but you know, that, that might not be the ideal, but what's, what are the benefits of olive oil? And is that tied into inflammation of said hypothalamus as, as a potential remedy for that? Great question. So with the implications with neuroinflammation, so brain inflammation, Again, this is tied in deeply to symptoms of depression, but is your practitioner telling you that? We have a pretty substantial set of data right now indicating how inflammation is playing a huge role in mental health challenges, but is anybody putting a strategy together to reduce inflammation in your brain? Again, probably not. Part of the issue is the brain is very protective. It's hard to get a peak. Even when we're getting diagnosed with a depressive uh, condition or another mental health category of condition, it's not based on any analysis except a conversation or some behaviors. They're not doing blood work. 
They're not looking at your testosterone. They're not looking at what your thyroid's doing. They're not looking at your neurotransmitters. They might say you have a serotonin imbalance, right? Or, you know, but are they checking? That's very hard to do, by the way, to check serotonin. And so it's just, it's just like this crazy system based on guessing, yeah. not, not even educated guessing, by the way. So I'm saying all that to say that's the mental health side, but on the metabolic, like physical health side. So researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine have uncovered that hypothalamic inflammation specifically is now directly causative, not just connected, but causative of more body fat accumulation and insulin resistance downstream. Why is that? The hypothalamus, this master gland in our brain is the integration of our nervous system and our endocrine system, our hormones. And it's kind of like, this is, if you're looking for who's controlling my metabolism, like where's the, the, the computer station? Where's the guy in the van determining like how many calories I'm burning a day versus, you know, my, the next person that location is in the hypothalamus. So that is why we see these metabolic disruptions are deeply again, tied in with the, the, with the thyroid as well, all the things that's all existing on the HPA axis. And so, but here's the rub. They found that acceler excessive amounts of belly fat and body fat lead and, and insulin resistance leads to more inflammation in the brain and the hypothalamus. So that it becomes this vicious circle. Inflammation is creating downstream belly fat. Belly fat's creating more upstream inflammation in my brain. I'm trapped. This is part of the struggle that a lot of people are experiencing trying to lose weight with conventional means. We're not addressing the fire that's happening in our brain, specifically the hypothalamus. What's causing the fire? We have to remove that, all right? Ultra-processed foods are a huge part of this equation. In particular, the excessive amounts of sugar because our, our brain, the blood-brain barrier, has a tremendous amount of sugar gates for like speed access and allowing a lot of sugar in. It's been found to, again, create insulin resistance in the brain, which is type 3 diabetes is one of the names that it's getting for Alzheimer's, by the way. But your brain, this is from researchers at Harvard, will gladly confiscate 50% of the sugar you just consumed from any given beverage or food because our we evolved in a certain way, when we would access some sugar, some, some carbohydrates in nature, your brain requires a lot of energy. It's 2% of your body's mass, but it can use upwards of 20%, 25% of the calories you consume. It is crazy. It's crazy. Specifically glucose. So now we're getting this insane amount, just one 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I did this all the time. We're talking 16 teaspoons of sugar, 16, like one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> And the orange juice is, you can't even say that it's better, it's 14 teaspoons yeah. in the same 20 ounce bottle, right? So it's just like all this sugar we never would have came across is creating inflammation in the brain and tearing down, uh, in particular, the hypothalamus. So remove the cause, ultra processed foods, big issue with that. What are some things we can add in to accelerate it? You already mentioned it. Crazy enough, olive oil. I don't have any dog in the fight. I don't care if it's olive oil. I don't care if it's, I don't know. I don't care if it's freaking- Bacon bits. Bacon bits, yeah. I don't care if it's uh, honey <laughs> nut Cheerio oil. I don't care. The data shows that 
Our ancestors figured something out a long time ago. Extending an olive branch, creating peace, right? Mm. It's happening within our bodies. Olive, olives and olive oil does something special. So this is from researchers at Auburn. They found that olive oil, oleocanthal rich, this antioxidant rich, extra virgin olive oils, cold processed, as it's been traditionally, can actually help to repair the blood brain barrier and stop that kind of excessive breakdown of this protective mechanism that's not, that's keeping out things that are creating more inflammation in the brain. So I mentioned ultra processed food, but it's not just the sugar, by the way. It's all of these synthetic, newly invented chemicals that is tearing our brain apart. Yeah. All right. And so olive oil is, is, is one. Also, um, and I identified a couple more of these, but another really interesting one, which is a popular food today, is broccoli, right? So broccoli has these really unique compounds that have been found to help to reduce inflammation in the brain, funny enough. And it's called a head of broccoli, interestingly. You know, but there's something, there's some compounds in there that are pretty remarkable. Another one is spirulina. And spirulina has been a protein source for, I mean, countless human civilizations for thousands of years. Um, you know, Chad, the country of Chad in Africa, uh, Aztecs, Mayans, the list goes on and on. Very dense protein food. It, but here's the thing. If we're talking about 70% protein by weight, just about, but it doesn't weigh a lot. So that can't be your dominant, predominant protein source, but more so there are these very unique compounds um, that have been found that have been identified in spirulina, like phycocyanin, for example, that has been found to stimulate stem cell genesis in the human body. Like mm -hmm. I mentioned, I think I said honey nut Cheerio oil or something. Honey nut Cheerios can't do that shit. It can't stimulate stem cell production. Spirulina can. It's really, really cool. But here's what it's all about. At the end of the day, we find out about these cool things, but then what? What do we do with it? What do I do with spirulina? It's kind of weird. It's kind of gross. If you just, should I just eat it? So in the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, we've identified about 40 of the most science-backed food for improving our metabolic health, our sleep quality, our mental health. You get all the studies right there, but you don't even need to read the studies. I, even, I, make, I literally boil it down to emojis. We have an emoji culture. And so if I share that study on the benefit with, with uh, cognitive function and brain health, it's a little brain emoji right by that food. And then we have the associated recipe. So one of the recipes with spirulina, for example, is a speedy superfood guacamole. And I'm telling you, mm. I'm a foodie. All right, we're about that life. We just love food. It is delicious. My friend, Lewis Howes, who a lot of folks might know, he's got one of the top shows out there, School of Greatness. He had tried guacamole one time, didn't like it before he ever came over to our house. And we were having tacos and um, I was like, you know, you want some guac or whatever? He was like, nah, I don't like it. Guess what? He tried the food guacamole, <laughs> he tore that shit up. All right, changed his life. And ever since, and listen, his girlfriend is from Mexico. Lewis is in salsa clubs in freaking Bangladesh and like all these like exotic places. He didn't touch guacamole though until he had it with me. All right. <laughs> so, and, and with that said, by the way, another one of these really remarkable foods that's, again, it's, it's out here on the streets heavy now is sweet potatoes. Mm. That's some really special anthocyanins that have been found to directly act upon the memory center of our brains. All right. Yeah. The hippocampus. Cool. Baked sweet potato. Awesome. But 
Guess what we did? Sweet potato pancakes, sweet potato protein pancakes to increase the protein fracture, fraction so that it's a more balanced even for our blood glucose perspective. But also, again, we get to enjoy the process of having these delicious foods. Yeah. You know, And so it's that's one of those things where my kids, like we make a big batch and we can freeze it so that my youngest son was getting ready for school. He could just grab some out of the freezer, warm them up, give himself some fruit. Wow. Like he can, he can enjoy the process, enjoy delicious foods. And that's what it's really all about. I love that. The other, the other night, two nights ago, we made uh, sweet potato chips for uh, nachos. We made like this big nacho plate and made a little sweet potato chip thing in the bun. It's very nice. Uh, I appreciate you so much, man. I really greatly value your capacity to blend the esoteric with the scientific uh, and the mind and the body and the heart and the soul and the, you know, like be able to integrate all that and be able to present all of that information in a digestible way. And I'm so grateful for you to have created the most recent book, uh, Eat Smarter, the, your, your cookbook. I'm so glad that you finally did a cookbook. I feel like if there's anybody that would, I'd, I'd want to have a cookbook from, I think it'd be you. So I really appreciate you putting it out there, man, and making time for this. Um, what's the What's the best, since we got to wrap up, what's the best direction for people to go from here? So I just found out earlier today, Publishers Weekly, bestseller, USA Today national bestseller, we're about to put on the cover. Um, it was a top cookbook in the country this past week. Nice, and that's nuts. Like they're like, quote, celebrity chefs. I said I wasn't going to say quote anymore, but one last. <laughs> celebrity chefs and all these things. There's something special about this that is yeah. like kind of galvanizing and getting this this movement going because it's about more than just delicious food, which again, that should be a huge part of our livelihood and our connection. Yeah. But it's about the education component and the empowerment, you know, and getting families and friends together and helping to heal the divide so that we can have healthier conversations so that we can start to feel good. You know, there's this common tenant we talk about that people that if, if we're looking at not doing well, oftentimes we don't do well because we don't feel well. And we sure. could do some extraordinary things in, under terrible circumstances, you know, suffering, for example, but it's just harder. It's a lot harder. So um, I'm very proud of this. And actually, because of the book rising so quickly in popularity, Amazon just, I just found this out yesterday as well. They just dropped the price of the, of the cookbook by 20% on Amazon. Oh, so you can pop over to Amazon and take advantage of that. It's called the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. And of course, you could support your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble. We want to keep our local bookstores open. We want to keep Barnes & Noble open. It's a vibe going to a bookstore and hanging out. So um, I definitely support that as well. So, But just anywhere that books are sold, you could find this. And I'm, I'm telling you now, it's going to be a staple in your kitchen. You know, It's such a great resource. It's a beautiful book. And that's what we're seeing You know, from all the people that are sharing out there on social media is like people get this cookbook and it just becomes a staple because not only is this delicious food, high quality food that parents are gonna enjoy, but kids love it as well. And that was the mission to be all encompassing, all inviting for everybody. It took a lot of work to create something like that for sure. And um, I'm grateful because I really, I, I really feel like we did it. Oh, well, I think you did it. Um, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate uh, getting to have this conversation i look forward to look forward to the next time uh that is it that is all thank you all for tuning in i'll see you next week 
Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you did, feel free to tag a part of it. Uh, you can tag me at Aaron Alexander on Instagram. Recently changed the handle from Align Podcast to Aaron Alexander. That was a long process of procuring that mofo, but we were able to get it, which is cool, convenient. Uh, so you can tag me at Aaron Alexander. You can also tag Sean at Sean Model, I believe is his Instagram handle. Uh, and feel free to jump over to the Align Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe over there so you get each week's videos. That is it. That is all. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.